as Pastor Mark was saying, welcome to Genie Faith Center. And if this is your first time here, this is a great uh, Sunday to be a part of because we're doing something a little bit different. There are three of us on stage, and we're finishing our series, What, Why, and How, um, about some different big questions that we might have. And so this last Sunday, we're, we're going to be answering the questions that you have been texting in the last week or so. And so we're not going to answer every single question that was texted in, but hopefully through um, the questions that we're going to be answering, it'll help answer other questions that you may have had. So we have an amazing guest up here with us. This is Pastor Karen Triplett. So a lot of you see her. Uh, Woo, yeah. Give her a hand. Woo. A lot of you see her lead worship with us, but she is a, a ordained pastor through the Assemblies of God Church, and you've been a pastor for nine years up on, uh, 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 excuse me, <laughs> at Eastern's campus, and um, you have a lot of wisdom, and we are super excited for you to be a part of what we're doing. When uh, Mark asked Karen, and she said yes, we were both like, yes, we got a secret weapon. That's Pastor right. Karen is going to be on the, on the panel with us, so we are excited for that. So um, what's going to happen today is we have various questions, and some of us are going to take turns answering. Some of us will take turns um, giving the question. But we're going to have a little timer as well, a three-minute timer that will be pushed. In the last 20 seconds, uh, there is some, like, Academy Award, uh, you know, like, all right, finish up your speech type music um, that will be played. And then we, we're doing that on purpose so that we can hear, like, we need to kind of wrap up our thoughts. So uh, we're going to have a three-minute timer for each person. So just in case, Pastor Mark, I mean, if all of us go a little bit long, uh, we can have that, that timer. Just keeping it real. Us. Keeping it real. Yeah. <laughs> with that. So um, with that said, Pastor Mark, you have the first question. I do. I'm going to read this verbatim that was texted in this last week, and it says this. Mark shows amazing faithfulness and loyalty to the 49ers despite the ups, downs, highs, lows, and disappointments in various games and seasons. How, as Christians, can we show that same faithfulness and loyalty in our various relationships with coworkers, neighbors, friends, and family? That is a great question, right? Well, as you know, as a Niners fan, I'm riding a high right now, right? But there have been a couple years I've been riding a deep low. And isn't that true about relationships too? Like sometimes our relationships can be really good or they can be super challenging. And so in our relationships with all kinds of people, it can be in our immediate family or at work or a neighbor, that, that relationship can be experiencing the same thing, a high, a low, and up, a down. And I think the key, like what I do with the Niners, is don't give up, right? Don't give up on anyone. Jesus didn't give up on us. And we shouldn't give up on anyone else. And so I think that's a key. That's a focus. It's one of the things that I think the Lord wants us to do with those relationships. One of the ways we can not give up on those relationships is we can always pray for them. We can always pray for those people we are in relationship with. No matter what's going on in that relationship, we can always be faithful to take that person before the Lord and say, Jesus, would you work in this person's life? Another thing that I think has been really uh, life-altering or changing for Kate and I in the way we deal with people and relationships, all of our relationships, is a book we read a couple years ago called Love, Acceptance, and Forgiveness by Jerry Cook. It's a small little book, but it is a fabulous book. And all he talks about is basically this. This is how Jesus treats us, with love, acceptance, and forgiveness all the time. 
And so that's how we should treat other people with that same love, acceptance, and forgiveness. I think that's a great way to think about it, to think about how you should uh, be with your neighbors and your friends. Colossians 4, 5 and 6 says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Another really important thing in all of our relationships is to remember the, remember the eternal perspective. In that relationship, you may be the only Jesus that person ever sees. And so when you think about that perspective as well, it can help you get your heart right and your mind right and your focus on that relationship. Lastly, sometimes we can be in a relationship that maybe needs some boundaries. Maybe that neighbor or that coworker or somebody is not very kind, not gentle. Maybe they're obnoxious, decisive or divisive and uh, just really a difficult person to be around. They might even be really ungodly. And it's in those cases, I want us to also know it's okay to have a loving boundary and just find moments where you can be in relationship with that person and model the life of Jesus Christ to that person. But there's going to be times where you also have to have some great boundaries. Lastly, I'd like to thank my mom and dad and my wife, Kate, and uh, my first youth pastor and my little league coach, Jim. Thanks. That was three minutes. That was folks. three minutes. That was three minutes. Woohoo! God I is did a miracle it. I worker, did it. A promise keeper. <laughs> um, this next this next set of questions we're all going to kind of take turns um, answering, and it deals with Christian platitudes or like cliche Christian sayings. And a few people texted in, and even just some conversations uh, in the comments. People are like, how do you deal with this? Like, I've heard people say maybe, like, God won't give you more than you can handle and different things, kind of like one-off statements. Are those biblically accurate? Um, is that something that I should be saying to other people? And so we thought, well, we might as well pick kind of like three uh, top uh, Christian cliches and kind of maybe debunk them or just give some biblical perspective in what's being said in that. And so yeah. Mark and I are going to take about three minutes, um, uh, but then we're going to restart the timer for Karen to answer hers to give a little bit more practicality as well in, in her uh, Christian platitude that she'll be talking about. So Good. Mark, why don't Good. you start us off? All right. So mine is this phrase that sometimes we say or hear, when God closes a door, he opens a window. Oh, it's an interesting phrase. It can kind of mean two things. Sometimes I hear people say that, and, and what it means is, I really want God to agree with me, <laughs> with what I'm doing and what I want to do. And so even though God's closing that door, he's opening a window over here for me to get to do what I want. Uh, I don't think that's biblical or accurate. Um, but the other way that we sometimes say it is that when God closes a door, he opens a window, or he provides another opportunity for us to recognize where we should be or the center of his will by closing this door and by opening where he really wants us to be. And in that case, we recognize biblically that's really how God works. When he closes a door, he means I'm done. I don't want that situation in your life anymore, but I'm gonna open this for you so that you can be in the center of my will. Let me give you an example of that. That happened to the Apostle Paul while he was evangelizing in what is modern-day Turkey. And the story is portrayed like this in Acts 16, verse 7. When they came to the border of Messiah, they tried to enter Bithynia, 
but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. In other words, God closed the door. So they passed by Messia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And there's the example of God opening a window and an opportunity for them to go somewhere else. So that's a great idea of when God closes a door, he opens a window. Cool. I'm going to talk briefly on this one that's been said. Uh, God helps those who help themselves. There's two parts this I want to just talk about quickly. Is number one, um, we actually are helpless, and that was our need for Jesus, right? So God actually helped us because we were helpless. In Ephesians and Romans, there's a lot of language that talks about how we could not help ourselves. So that's that grace that we needed from from the Lord through Jesus to help you know us be regenerated. But practicality as well is you have to put effort into your faith journey, into your faith walk. Um, also, if it's like, hey, I'm looking for a new job, but I'm going to sit here for 25 years until the Lord plops it right in my lap, that's not going to work out, right? Like you have to actually put effort into um, you know, pursuing this new direction, and God will you know, maybe open a door or close a door and give you that direction as well. So um, there's kind of the spiritual side of it and also some of the practical sides of it as well. And I want to thank my mom and my dad and my, my little league coach, not named Jim. <laughs> That's good. Great. Good job. Well, we're going to give Karen a full three minutes on hers because hers is actually a very interesting cliche that we hear a lot, but probably requires a little bit more attention. So Karen, you spend a lot of time with students and college students, and we all know that during that time of life, we can really be struggling with certain things, and we're trying to figure life out, and just, uh, it's good to have somebody like you as a mentor around, but a lot of times they get in that situation or that circumstance, and the, the Christian cliche that we often say when we're talking to someone that's having a hard time is, well, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. And um, it's an interesting statement, maybe not even a very good cliche, and it might not even be biblical. So talk with us about that a little bit. Yeah, I think this most likely comes from a verse in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 13, and that says, No temptation has seized you beyond what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Um, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So this verse is pretty clear that it's specifically addressing temptation because, yes, God won't tempt you beyond what you can handle because he doesn't want to cause you to sin. That's not his goal. Um, his goal is to provide a way out for you in those situations. He will, on the other hand, allow you to be in situations where you are past your capacity. Mm -hmm. You might actually feel like that pretty regularly. Think about this. Like, when are you most dependent on Jesus? When your life is sailing smoothly or when you feel like you're dealing with more than you can handle? <laughs> I remember being in the midst of a really tough ministry situation one of the first years that I was working up at Eastern and thinking this is the most I have ever prayed in my life. <laughs> I was talking to Jesus more than I ever had before. And if someone's going through a hard time, I, I probably would first tell them, like, I am so sorry you're dealing with this. It sounds like it's a lot that you're going through right now. That just sounds really hard. Um, it's probably really hard to hang in there right now. I think empathy is really key to that if you're talking to someone for them to actually know that you care or listen to you because um, these kind of platitudes aren't really helpful in 
validating someone's experience because they're thinking this actually is more than I can handle. And we've kind of debunked that. That's not actually true. Um, that being said, I would encourage them to take this opportunity to just press into Jesus and draw mm-hmm. even closer to him and lean on him for the strength that they need because they probably are past their capacity. And the truth is we're actually promised trouble in this world. If you look at John 16, 33, it's a nice little promise in there that God does keep. It says You'll, you will have trouble in this world. <laughs> but right after that, Jesus says to take heart because he has overcome the world. And so that is who you want on your side in those hard situations. Amen. That's a good answer. We also received several questions dealing with this concept or idea that sometimes we read something in the Bible and we see the truth of that in the Bible, but it's not what we're experiencing in life. And so we have this challenge of of how do we continue down this road we're in and trust God's word that, that declares this truth, but we're not seeing that as a reality in our life. So we had several questions like that. One of them uh, that Cooper's going to uh, work on was the question, why do some people get healed and others do not experience healing? Or what if I keep praying for things to get better and it hasn't worked out? Yeah, and those are hard questions. And I think some of the more frustrating parts of just being a human, being a Christ follower, um, because I have that same question, like, Definitely, and I'm really hoping and praying. Well, I know that in heaven, God will answer that because there's questions that I'm like, I like, why is this happening, Lord? Um, but we look at some different scripture and look at some different contexts within this um, conversation. I think there's uh, there's our part and there's also God's part. A lot of times when it comes to healings um, and what and what God is doing, um, there is this part where people have faith. And that Christ will heal them. If it's the woman reaching out to touch the hem of his garment, she's healed. And he says, your, your, your faith has healed you, right? So there's this part where we have to be consistent in praying. Um, last week, I shared during our worship time, Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble, but constantly be praying. Like, don't say, oh, like my, my friend wasn't healed, so I'm, I'm done praying. No, keep pressing in and keep um, contending for healing in that person's life. Uh, Paul talks a lot about, too, being content in the season that God has placed you in. Whether you're healthy, whether you're sick, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, to be content in that season that he has placed you in and be reliant on who Jesus is constantly. Uh, Another section, James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, writes in a couple areas, but in James chapter 1, he says, Count it as joy when you experience trials and tribulations. He actually doesn't say in that section, if you have trials or tribulations, stop and pray right now and don't don't move forward. He says, actually, let this be an opportunity for you to gain um, godly characteristics. Let this be an opportunity for you to rely on the Lord during this time. Later on, he talks about healing. He talks about it in two different ways, both spiritual healing and physical healing. And he says, pursue that, pursue that, pursue healing both in your spiritual life but also in your physical life and come to the elders and and have them lay hands on you and really contend um, to the Lord for healing. And then one thing I want to just add to in this 
is uh, one, one of the parables, and we talked about this about a year ago in that prayer, Draw the Circle book from Mark Batterson, was that um, parable of the persistent widow who keeps asking and asking the king for a certain request. And finally, the king acknowledges that request. And I think for us, whatever season, we got to keep praying, keep contesting for healing, keep saying, Lord, I'm believing for healing. Because, man, I'll just be honest, as a pastor, I've prayed for people, friends, family members, who have died, like, literally after I prayed for them. And it's like, wow, like, you know, why? And so you have those hard questions. But I'm going to still pray for healing to other people because I believe God will always move. Depending on how I feel or what I see, God is always going to be moving in, in those realms. So, Yeah. Good. Thanks, Cooper. That's a tough one because it's a deep, deep issue of trust. Well, another question that was really good, I I'm, I'm want to throw Karen's direction. Um, and it was this one, how do you know when God talks to you or how does God talk to us? Yeah, I think it is a great question because we talk about being in a relationship with God. So that means that there should be communication, right? Um, also, I think the language of hearing God's voice is thrown around in the church world a lot. And it's kind of Christianese. Like you, you don't hear God's voice in an audible way like you're hearing my voice right now very often. A lot of times it's more this still small voice that's maybe inside your head or inside your heart rather than in your ears. So the main thing I wanted to communicate about this is that God has already spoken to each one of us and he's written it down. How cool is that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> he wrote it down, right? The word of God, the Bible, that's what I'm talking about. The Bible is living and active and there are times that you might be reading through scripture and something will just jump off of the page to you. It might be something you've read 20 times before, and God just wants to use that verse to speak to you. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed, and the loudest and most consistent way that God speaks is through his written word. We know that everything that we find in the Bible, God said. And I, I love this truth that really through the Bible, like we have equal access to the voice of God right here in his written word. Mm -hmm. And I think the most common struggle I hear from college students is doubting whether, is this really God's voice or is this something I'm just making up in my head? Is this one of my own thoughts? I think this really is just a strategic fear that the enemy can use to, to prevent you from hearing what God is trying to say to you. Um, if you experience that fear, I would just encourage you to pray against it and ask God to speak and then leave the space for him to do it. So that means we get to listen. It means we get to read our Bible. It means we get to sit in silence, however uncomfortable it may be. And the more time we spend with Jesus and leave him room to speak, the more familiar we can become with the ways that he's speaking to us individually. So practically, you might have a thought that just kind of like shoots through your head and you're like, well, I never thought that before. That could be God's voice. Um, someone might send you a really timely like text of encouragement that helps you like grow in Jesus where you're at. You're like, that could be the voice of God. That could be God's voice. Someone might come up and share something with you that they feel like God wants to say to you, or you might hear something up front on a Sunday morning, and it really deeply resonates with you. And you might say, like, that, maybe that's God's voice. Um, that could be his voice through others. It's called the gift of prophecy. You can read more about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I did say for each of these that could be God's voice because there's one very necessary filter 
Does what you think you've heard from God go against anything you would find in Scripture? If it contradicts anything in the Bible, it's not God speaking. He won't say anything that goes against it. So how do you know? You read God's word, and then you're also hearing his voice. So it's a win-win. Oh, I didn't beat the time this time. (laughs) (laughs) You were right there. (laughs) All right, well, this next question is for you, Pastor Mark. And um, I'm going to kind of phrase it in a way, but... Uh, this person texted in that in, in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, there's a lot of language that talks about um, God foreknew or predestined people, and it might be in the, in the terms of salvation or them saying yes to Jesus. And so the, the question that was kind of asked was, so with this language of God knows who's going to say yes to Jesus and all those things, should that limit or should that change how we evangelize or talk to our friends about Jesus? Because Maybe God already knew they're going to be saved, so why should I even, you know, be proactive in that sense? So you want to kind of tackle that, and you know what? We'll give you a one-timer pass. A one-timer on the, on pass. Question, Good. Yeah. Might take a little Good. Bit Thank of time. you. Yeah, this is a huge question. This has uh, been a big question for theologians and for the church for really thousands of years because it deals with, you know, we're we're going kind of into the realm that we don't know in some ways. Now we have some scriptural basis and backing that we can use to, to answer this question, but what we're really talking about here is, is the sovereignty of God. We know that God knows all things, God sees all things, and he's not timeless. So all of that's really challenging when we think about, did God see us choose Christ? Does God see other people not choose Christ? And how does that all get worked out in, in our theology and in salvation. Let's start with the verse in Romans 8, 29 to 30. Let me read it for us since it was put in the context of the question. It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, here's the challenge in this verse, and there are several others as well in Ephesians and Colossians and in Romans that talk about the foreknowledge of God, that God, because God can see something before it happens or before we see it happen for sure, how does that work with our salvation? Did God see that I was going to choose him and so I'm predestined or did I actually have a choice? Here's the big challenge. We know that God can see all things, but does that mean God is orchestrating or manipulating all things? And I think what we find biblically is that God sees all things, but just because God sees all things, that doesn't mean he's manipulating everything. Because as we looked at last week in John chapter three and in many other places in scripture, you and I still have free will. We still have a choice to say yes to Jesus or no to Jesus in every area of our life. So God gave us free will. He created us like that. That is his design for our life. Yet we see these moments where we are talked about like God saw us choosing him or possibly God didn't. The other challenge that we have is, does that mean God is handpicking who's in and who's out? Like is God saying, oh, you get in, I like you, and you don't get in, I don't like you? Well, that's challenging. One of the verses that can help us with that is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 6. It says, This is good 
and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, one of the things, whenever we are making a theology or making a statement, especially about big things about God, you've got to look at a lot of verses. You can't just take one and make your entire theological premise on one verse. You've got to look at several verses that talk about that idea and put them all together and come up with a good theology about that. Well, here's an example. One verse is saying, God says, I want all people to be saved. And it might look like the other verse is saying that certain people are, are called or predestined and certain other people aren't. I, I've used an illustration over the years that I think has helped me with this theology. And I think can help us with a lot of theology, to be honest. I think sometimes when, when we grapple with big theological ideas, sometimes we answer those questions from our viewpoint instead of from God's viewpoint. Now follow me. We look at that theological idea from the way we see the world and from our experience, the way we grew up, the way we're living life, the way life is happening on the planet right now. But that's not how God deals with the world. He sees things totally different. So imagine for a moment that you are watching a parade, but you're standing at street level. So when you're watching that parade at street level, you don't see the entire parade. You only see what's right in front of you. And because of our peripheral vision, we see a little bit to our left and a little bit to our right. That's all we see. Now imagine that that parade is all of mankind. And it's all of us making our decisions to serve Jesus and believe in Jesus or not. Well, in this parade of humanity, we only see a certain amount of time. We're only experiencing a certain amount of time. I'm only experiencing 1973 to wherever I die, right? That's all I see. That's my viewpoint. But God doesn't see the world that way. God sees everything from heaven. And so he's looking from a viewpoint above the parade. So he can see everything. He can see the parade from the very beginning to the very end. He can see all of humanity at the exact same time, from the creation to when he will end it. And he can see everybody's life, everybody's hearts, everybody's decisions, whether they say yes to Jesus or no to Jesus. And it's possible that what God is seeing is every single person that is choosing to believe in Jesus Christ. And as they do, they become what we now see in Scripture as predestined, called, justified, glorified. When we look at theology from God's viewpoint, we always end up with a better viewpoint. I hope that helps. Cool. I would love to ask Cooper another question that came in. Um, it says, last week we talked about how we know we're going to heaven and one of the things we referred to was believing in Jesus. But what happens when we sin after we believe in Jesus? Is there a point when my habitual sin is proving that I don't believe in him anymore? Mm. Good question. It's going to be hard to answer that because I've never sinned once in my life. So, uh, so <laughs> He's I'll, a Vikings fan. Of I'll course he has. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah, I think it's a very valid question. And um, I think even in, the, in that person asking that question shows that they have a heart to pursue truth and pursue Jesus, which is a good thing. Yeah. But I want to go to First uh, John chapter 3 and be in verses 7 through about 10. And it says this, Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning, because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning, because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Whoa, that's a powder-packed punch right there from John. Yeah. But I want to just focus on um, a little bit here in verse 9, in verse 8 too. He talks about um, making a practice of sinning. And so the language used there is a person who is characterized by their sinful lifestyle, which means that that's what they're known about. It's not that they're known as a Christ follower who is pursuing Jesus. They're known as someone who really has no regret, has no repentant heart towards a lifestyle that, that maybe they once were in or are currently in, or maybe a sin issue. And that's what they are known about. They are making that a normal practice. Now, I want to say this. We're not perfect, and that's why we need Jesus, right? We need the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us and also convict us of sin. But what Mark said in, uh, in his message last week, I just thought was so spot on, is it's about direction, not perfection. That we are directing our lives towards Jesus and letting his Holy Spirit continue to refine who we are. Because we're going to mess up, we're going to sin. But I think the big key difference is, are we letting that practice of sinning be something that we're not repentant of? Is that something that we're just like, whatever, like, who cares? I'm going to keep doing this. First um, John 1, 9 says, God is faithful to forgive those who confess their sins. Like, we are offered opportunities to confess things in our life and redirect our lives, right? To have that direction and not that perfection. Because we are perfect in Christ. We are justified and we are made righteous. There's also this sanctification process where we are being refined um, by the Holy Spirit. And there's moments where we need to, um, you know, confess and repent. And if we don't have that heart of repentance, Scripture is kind of clear and like, man, maybe you're not part of the family of God, which is a very scary thought. So we'll end on a scary thought. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Oh, good. Well, uh, I want to ask another question to Karen that's along that similar idea. You know, what if, what if I do have this thing in my life that is modeling that I don't have a relationship with Jesus, or maybe I've walked away from the Lord? The question is, how do I get back? So if I've walked away from God, how do I get back? Yeah, well, if you're in the scary thought part, how do you get back? Okay, so, um, yeah, looking at that, how does that happen? If you're, if you're asking this question and you're seeking God, then you might have already discovered that he's not far away, but he actually pursues us. He's pursuing mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And we find an encouraging story in Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son, and most of you are likely familiar with that parable that Jesus tells about a son who's... Um, left his father, he's squandered away all of his wealth, which was his father's inheritance, on wild living, is how Jesus puts it. And then he says, he comes to a moment where the son comes to his senses. This is the point where he realizes that walking away from his father 
was not the right decision. And maybe that's where you're at right now. Um, it's landed him in a bad spot, to say the least. He makes a plan to go apologize to his father and beg to be accepted back, even as a lowly servant, not even as his son. So his father's apparently been watching for him to come from far off, just like God is for his children who are wandering. And he sees him while he's still far off, and he comes, he comes to embrace him. And before the son could even get through his planned like, apology speech to his dad, um, he was planning a celebration for his return and fully accepts him back as a son, like reinstates um, his, his original standing as a son. So a couple things I think that we can learn and apply from this parable is that the son was repentant, right? He grieves what he had done. Um, just like when we first realize that we're sinners in need of a savior the first time we come to know Jesus, we confess our sins and we feel appropriate remorse and we choose to leave the past behind and move forward with Jesus in, um, in each new day. And practically, this might look like distancing or even cutting yourself off from some friends that might have um, been a huge part of your life when you were walking away from God. And most likely, when you come back to Jesus, there are, there are habits that you realize might hinder rather than help your relationship with Jesus. So that means you might want to change some things. And it's a process. It's a process. It's okay to know that. And Jesus has grace in the midst of all of that. And if you've walked away from God, I want you to know he's overjoyed that you want to restore a relationship with him. He has open arms, and the choice is up to you to accept that free gift of grace again. Mm -hmm. Just tell him that you want to. And Jeremiah 29, 13 um, is a verse that I like. It says, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And so I would encourage you to seek after God, to talk to him, to read his word. That's where we hear his voice. And find community with other believers if you want to continue to grow in Jesus and live for him daily. Amen. Amen. Well, we have time for one more question, Pastor Mark. Great. Um, then also, if you can kind of maybe wrap up just this kind of series, pray for us. Mm -hmm. um, this is what this question is saying. It says, when, when you pass on, so when you, when you die, uh, do you go to heaven? Or are you kind of in a holding pattern until maybe Jesus comes back again or, or something like that? So. Right. Good. Yeah, this is a good question. I think we've all wondered this one at some point, right? Like, what happens when I die? Where do I go? We have all kinds of different ideas in the church. Do I end up in purgatory and I got to work my way through each level? Uh, do I end up in a holding pattern till Jesus comes back? Do I, do I go to heaven right away? I think we all kind of wonder this one. This is a good one. And what's interesting, in the Bible, we have several parables, like a couple allegories, like some stories, and we have to try to kind of figure out some truth about it. I'm going to go to a verse that I think points to it directly. And it's interesting because a verse is about the moment when Jesus is dying, and so is the criminals on the cross next to him. It's in Luke chapter 29, so look at it with me, in verse 39 through 43. And it says this, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now let me stop there just for a moment. Here's an obvious moment where the criminal is recognizing who Jesus is. 
And he says, I recognize that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is perfect and that he's dying for me. This is a confession that he's making to Jesus. And then he says this in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now here's the operative word, right? Today. Jesus says, you're going to be with me today. When I die and when you die, we're going to see each other. And it's not going to be too long from now because we're getting close to the end of our life as we both hang on these crosses. Now, here's what's interesting. Did you notice what Jesus didn't say? Sometimes we need to see, see what wasn't said just as much as we look at what was said. Did you notice Jesus didn't say, well, hold on a second. You've been a pretty bad guy. So here's what I'm going to do. Since you're asking right now at the end of your life, I'll start you at the third level of purgatory. There's 10 of them. So you'll have to work your way up and you'll probably spend about 50 to 75 years in purgatory, but I'll see you later. He didn't say that. Did you notice he also didn't say, well, you know what? For bad people that only come to know me at the end of their life, there's like a holding tank. There, it's for like you wasted your life, but you figured it out at the end, so you're in a holding tank. He didn't say that either. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. I made it, right? Okay, great. <laughs> Good. Well, thanks, everyone. Um, so our understanding, obviously, is that when we, when we die, we're, we're immediately in God's presence. Well, I hope you've had a great time with this series, What, Why, and How. We certainly have as a staff, and it's brought up a lot of great questions with other people in the body, and uh, we've been able to answer some of those you know, publicly. But you might still have some questions privately. If you still have a question that you're like, man, I still haven't received an answer for this one, and you still would like to get an answer for it, uh, can I just encourage you to do some good study in God's word or to grab a staff member or to somebody mature in Christ and go to coffee or get some lunch and ask your question and try to get to an answer for it? But can I also uh, just say this? God loves our questions. I mean, he's not afraid of our questions at all. So keep asking questions and keep believing that the Lord can give you an answer. And then lastly, I think I'd like to say, I think it's really good for us to always have an attitude of asking questions and wanting answers. But I also know this, there are some things we are really not going to know until we get to heaven. That's just reality. We're not God and we cannot, in some ways, I think it might be a little bit too arrogant for us to think that we could get an answer for every single possible thing that is in all of creation on the planet and off it. That's a little bit arrogant to maybe say, I'm that smart that I could comprehend all that or figure all that out. There, at some point, there needs to be a little bit of humility in us and a little bit of trust in us and a little bit of faith in who God is and that God's got it all figured out and I can trust my papa daddy. And, um, and so with that, let's pray and then we'll call it a day.